computer. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome back to the Philip Duff Show. And very excited joining me live from the Czech Republic, Chris Maffeo. Chris, how's things, mate? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you, Phil. Thank and you. Are, thank you, are you actually in Prague? Yeah. I am actually in Prague. Yeah. This is the, let's call it the headquarter of Maffeo Drinks, which is actually a room in my flat. But it's it's go. a proper room, so I can call it an office. You can call it an office, absolutely. <laughs> and more importantly, I hope you can get the tax write-off. <laughs> well, that's another story. <laughs> well, Prague is such an amazing place. Uh, I brought along, in honor, some Pilsner Urkel beer. Nice. I'm crack open and pour into my uh, Pilsner Urkel glass wow. with my name on it. So wow. they, were, they were doing the engraving at Bar Convent Berlin a few years ago. So, cheers. Thank you. God, and I love Czech I beer. also got myself a drink. It's later here, so I can, uh, I can have a harder drink. Well, I made mine a little harder with some Old Dove Geneva. Oh, okay, uh, I'm sure okay, it's okay. one of the things you advise your clients. Always be selling. ABC. So. Mm. Such a good combination. So, Chris, I wanted to speak to you. We interact quite a lot online. We haven't actually met in person. That is going to change, of course. But could you tell our listeners, all 12 of them, uh, about what brought you from Italy to all around the world to Maffeo Drinks? Fine. So uh, I'll, keep it, I'll keep it short. So I'm, um, I'm Italian, originally from Rome, but my roots are in the south of Italy, uh, near Avellino, which is... a uh, a smaller town near Naples, mm-hmm. and uh, I've been um, I've been living in Italy until I was twenty five, and then I actually uh, it's actually getting closer to your Geneva because I I did my thesis in Antwerp. Uh, I saw that, yeah. In uh, so I lived in Antwerp for about six months, uh, very very full six months. Uh, I can, you can imagine how Antwerp is. It's beautiful with a, with a thriving bar scene and uh, and vibrant community of uh, of expats. And then after that, I I moved to Finland uh, where I work for a design agency. Then I work. Then I moved to Stockholm, uh, Sweden, when I work for a branding agency. Um, and then just by out of a coincidence, I met someone on a plane, and uh, I. <laughs> <laughs> I got a job in uh, in Prague. So actually, I was working in Pilsen, which is actually a great coincidence that you're drinking Pilsen Rucker because I was actually stationed at the brewery. That's where so the exactly. word Pilsner comes from. It's amazing. Exactly. So that's where uh, so Pilsner is the adjective of of Pilsen, the the actual city. And uh, I was working there for uh, about uh, six and a half, seven years. Uh, for SAB Miller, and uh, part of my um, role, I mean, I started as an international marketing manager for Peroni. Uh, so I launched that with with the rest of the team all across Europe, and uh, let's say let's call it EMEA. So there was also Dubai, Istanbul, Tel Aviv, like in the in the remit. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked a lot in the Nordics because, I, of of course, like that's where I I had lived, so I knew the mm-hmm. the countries very well. And uh, and then I moved to um, so there was a transition with ABI buying uh, SAB Miller so like number one by number two of of the world of beer, which was a bit of a shaky you know awakening for me. Uh, and then I transitioned into Asahi that bought the European business mm-hmm. 
from SAB Miller. And then I, I, I left the business and I moved to Copenhagen, where I work at the headquarters of Carlsberg for, uh, for exactly one year. And, and there I was managing um, sales and, you know, I was a general manager for a, something called urban development. So it was basically launching the Casberg por- premium portfolio across the world in the biggest cities in the world. And my remit was pretty much like the US, uh, you know, and, and the Americas. So South America, Central America, Mexico, and uh, and so on. So, so since then, I haven't been traveling that much. Uh, but uh, I've been I've been based in uh, in Prague, and that's where I decided to launch my own company. Was mixed with family decision. Like I have a small daughter, which is roughly the same age as my business, <laughs> and that's what that was the final driver for setting up my own company and uh, and leaving the corporate world uh, aside. Well, I thought I was international. Fuck, man. <laughs> uh, why Prague? Like why not Karlovy Vary or Budapest? Um, or... <laughs> well, that because when I, I mean, the 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 the, the, um, the initial work was was based in Pilsen, as I said, but the, it, it was requiring a lot of traveling, and of course, the airport is in Prague, so I decided to stay in Prague. I mean, it's a beautiful city, and then I met my wife, and she's Czech, and you know, then uh-huh. we, we call we call Prague home now. So it's uh, it's been twelve, almost like thirteen years. I've been living here in Prague. Yeah, yeah. With that one, let's say, gap year in Copenhagen when I was commuting every Monday to Friday, I was in Copenhagen and and back for the weekend. So that's that counts as a as a double year. Well, (laughs) uh, it's funnily enough, I've been living in New York for uh, twelve years as well. Uh, It's also because of my American wife. So you see, that's um, that's how it is. That's how it goes. So a lot of people kind of lump the drinks industry in together. You know, that wine, beer, spirits. But I always feel that wine and beer are very similar and very different to spirits. Like my wife actually worked for AB InBev for a while. Okay. And, you know, in the head office. And that was definitely an eye-opener. For one thing, there was no beer in the office. I'm like, okay, you got to be fucking kidding me. Because the very biggest companies are very, very big indeed. And... They could buy, you know, spirits companies without taking out a loan. They're almost like marketing companies that happen to make beer as well. What do you think are the differences and similarities between beer and spirits? Um, I think, actually, I, I, I see it from a different, like a, a slightly different angle, because I see beer and spirits to be much more uh, similar than wine. I think I think wine, like let's say among the three, I think wine is the one that is kind of like standing out a little bit. Uh, but the biggest difference between beer and spirits, I would say, it's the shelf life. <laughs> mm. uh, the shelf life is a driver of a mindset different. I think, like you know, beer for me, it's a it's a it's a it's a real FMCG. So it's a fast moving consumer goods. It's it's about volume. It's smaller margin per unit, but you know, bigger margin as a uh, as a whole, right? Uh, and because you are having um, you know a shelf life, so I mean, a keg can last you know like I don't know like nine months, like in a, in a shelf life, a bottle is like nine to twelve months depending on the beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you open the keg, you know you have to get rid of it you know, within 
three, four days if you want to keep quality. I mean, of course, like you can keep it longer, like within a week, but I, I wouldn't recommend it and I wouldn't I wouldn't drink it right away. Um, I, I used to be, um, I actually qualified as a seller man in England for real ales and other things. So okay, okay. about a million years ago, this was a big part of my life. <laughs> So you know, you know what I'm talking about, and and I mean, and especially for Pilsen Urquell, I mean, like we were really strict in in quality and you know keeping the the rotation very, very frequent. Other, otherwise, we would basically like delist it from from keg and and just like sell bottles because you know if the bar wouldn't wouldn't generate that rotation, like it wouldn't make sense to have it. So, I think that was the biggest, let's say, gift you know coming for from beer for me. To move into spirits, which you know I'm I'm dealing more uh, with now, uh, that my mindset is about creating rotation before moving on to the next bar. So I'm 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 much more of a farmer before being a hunter, uh, because I, I I believe that if you you know you you need to hunt one bar and then you need to you know ensure the rotation before you move on to the right the other bar. Otherwise, you basically get you know, a bottle dusty on the shelf, which is great. It's a great phrase, you know, farming versus hunting. And it honestly hadn't occurred to me, obviously freshness. Do you know what else freshness is very important for? Uh, Possibly the newest addition to most back bars Mm -hmm. is actually these non-alcoholic spirits. Yes. Yes. Because they don't have, (laughs) I mean, obviously they don't have alcohol to stabilize them. Yes. So they do change. Yes. And yes. And, and it can yes. be quite a lot. And I think a lot of people, we have something like 12 non-alcoholic liquor stores in New York now. It's quite funny. And very often people are having a party. It's Christmas. It's the summer. It's a picnic. And they're like, oh, I need something for alcoholic Uncle Philip. You know, <laughs> he can't drink anymore. And they buy it and they have it, but then they don't see alcoholic Uncle Philip. I don't know why his name is Philip uh, for a year, and then the product has changed. Exactly, exactly, and that's the and that's the downside of these things. Like it's it's uh, you know if you don't, I mean, there's also like other categories that are kind of like sitting in between. Like if you take I don't know vermouth as a, as an example, like that you need to ensure that you you know like deplete it or like you know drink it in a in a in, in quite a fast time, I mean, compared to a gin or or any other more alcoholic beverage in terms of ABV, uh, and it's always very difficult to inst- inst- instill install that that mindset into spirits salespeople because be, because they're not in a hurry, they are basically saying like, okay, like I mean, I made a deal. It's sitting at Philip's bar. It's there, you know, it's been there like for five years. It's the same bottle, dusty. He, he wipes it off a little bit, but I've got a distribution point. But you basically don't have it because it's just like sitting in somebody's <laughs> back bar, you know, just like uh, in a useless kind of manner. I mean, sales staff are like sharks. You can't get angry at a shark for being a shark. And if you tell them, get me 20 distribution points, they will. They'll put one bottle in 20 different bars. And if you say, hey, there's a sales incentive and it ends on June 12th, well, they will sell up until midnight on June 11th. 
And yes. then they will just turn to the next thing. It's just yes. how it goes. Yes, yes, yes. And that's the that's the challenge with uh, with uh, yeah. I mean, spirits versus beer. Yeah, I mean, it, it is volumes. It is pouring deals and tap handles, but also inherently because there are people who write columns about beer, columns about wine. There's wine clubs and there's wine on TV. That's true. And we don't really have that for spirits. So consumers don't know. The joke, this was told to me as a joke. I thought it was very funny. And then one day I was in a bar and I actually heard this happening. The joke was that, you know, people don't know what they're drinking. And somebody would come in and do that thing where they're looking at the back bar, you know, like a meerkat. So it's either a consumer or a sales rep looking for their bottle, you know, or a brand manager. And as the bartender, you're you're there to help. So the, the way it would go, someone would say, oh, do you have Grey Goose? And the bartender would say no. And just about to explain all the other amazing vodkas that they have. And the customer says, I'll have a Macallan. <laughs> and I laughed about this for several years. And then I it, one time I heard it over my shoulder in a New York bar. I literally heard that order. Because those are brands. Most people don't know anything about spirits. And those are brands that you won't get laughed at. It's safe. Yes. Right? It's like if you're buying a car, a Mercedes is always a good choice. You don't need to educate yourself. A Mercedes is, you know, McCallum. There's lots of other cars out there. Some of them might be better or better value or different or cooler. But a Mercedes is like a safe choice. And I feel that people gravitate towards safe choices. That's very true. That's very true. That's very true. I think it could be the same in. Uh, in a, you, you just made me made me think of a of something I experienced like back in the days, like twenty years ago. That was really funny because uh, a guy went to a one. It was like when the wine bar trend was starting in Rome, back in Rome. Mm-hmm. And I remember like it was a client of mine, and I was sitting at the bar, and the and and one guy walks to the bar and and asks for a a glass of Brunello, and. And the barman says, like, I'm not going to open a, a bottle of Brunello for, for a glass. You know, like, this is not right. like, you know, the type of, you know, like, buy, you know, like, buy by the glass kind of thing. I can give you a, a glass of Novello, like, just playing with the Ello word. Right. And then he said, that, yeah, I'll add that. And I was like, how can you go from Brunello to Novello, which is a new wine for those who don't know. And it just like, you know, it went from Brunello to Novello just because of, you know, out of ignorance, because, you know, like it was just like they were going by the sound of the name. I, I heard this Ello, so I'm familiar with it kind of thing. And it's, you know, like, and that's what we tend to forget as, you know, like industry people, that the majority of consumers are actually, you know, ignorant in the good sense of the word, like in, in the sense that they're ignoring, you know, what they don't know like you know it's 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 a very difficult business that if you are spending all your days and nights on the product you are very familiar with it but the average joe doesn't know what uh you know pitted whiskey is or doesn't know what the botanicals and how many botanicals there are in a gin and you know like they don't know they know gin and tonic they may know negroni they may know you know, like um, the difference between Scotch and you know an Irish whiskey, if they're lucky. Or but 
majority of the people, as as you say, they don't know. And even people that claim to be, you know, oh, I'm into scotch, you know, and I have a lot of friends with like that, like that they have a cabinet full of scotch. And then when you ask them, you know, a single malt or like differences with this within these things, like they have no clue. Yeah, but you're not. I think the reason is you're not seeing it in the culture, right? Yes. Like think of all the times you saw a cocktail made well mm. on screen. You could probably think of maybe five times. Max. That's true. That's true. You know, like I think the most recent one was that movie with Ryan Gosling and Steve Carell, where he's like this master seducer who's teaching the dweeby guy. You know the one I mean? Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, I forget what it's called. E- Emma Stone's in it too. But he makes an old-fashioned, right? And apart from the fact that he muddles the sugar, which I don't agree with, uh, it's 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 pretty much a training video. It's so perfectly done because he lived in L.A. and Ryan Gosling apparently is part investor in a restaurant there. And he asked some bartenders that I know to teach him how to make the drink. Okay, okay, okay. Right? But... Uh, Maybe I could maybe think of five examples. Whereas you're always seeing people talking about wine. There's so many movies about wine. Uh, there's movies about beer. That's true. That's so it's, true. I, I think the consumer, like the smart, your your smartest friend, my smartest friend, who could be a brain surgeon or something, doesn't know about spirits. It doesn't mean they're stupid. I don't know about oh, brain surgery, right? Thank God. But it is a gap, and for a long time. Especially in the US, there was a the, the spirit companies voluntarily stopped advertising mm. on TV. There was no law against it. They could totally do it if they wanted to, but they're all terrified that what happened to tobacco companies will happen yes. to them. And it will yes. happen to them. Yes. Uh, for sure in America. And it will happen to a big company first. So they were all really kind of terrified. And they've only started TV advertising really in the last five to eight years again for spirits. Yes, that's true. That's true. And I mean, I, it was it was similar. I mean, we I remember like in my past in the corporate life, like, you know, like it, it was very tough guidelines like within within the company that were stricter than the law. And I was part of the com- committee to approve communication and stuff like that because like we didn't want that to happen, obviously. So that's the... That's a responsible uh, choice, but then of course, like that's the back the back side of it. That you know, like, it creates this kind of you know the, the stereotype is only is always the the person like sitting in the living room with a crystal uh, bottle uh, pouring themselves like, a, a scotch or a cognac, and and that's it. You know, that's as far as you go in a movie with uh, yeah. Well, with especially a, if they don't get sponsors. <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> i was watching a netflix series the diplomat very good by the way and everyone's pouring from decanters i'm like who the fuck uses a decanter anymore are you kidding me <laughs> exactly. like it's just that we couldn't get a sponsor <laughs> exactly exactly i can imagine but i don't one of the interesting things about you know what consumers know and don't know about spirits and how we as an industry, communicate it to them. People aren't stupid. You give somebody a book about whiskey, they they might like the book. They might read the book about whiskey. They like visiting distilleries. Distillery tourism is is way up. You know, people are crowdfunding brands and, uh, and all that sort of thing. But 
I think a certain degree of connoisseurship has increased because of COVID lockdowns, because people were stuck at home mm-hmm. and they started reading books and watching uh, YouTube and listening to podcasts. And I keep hearing from bartenders, people are coming in and they're quite, they're more well-informed on cocktails and spirits than they were in 2020. I can imagine. I can imagine. And I, I know this as well. I know this as well. Yeah. So especially, especially like the the you know the classic classic cocktails. Like there, there's been a bit of a rebirth of classic cocktails in you know also during the the lockdown and and, and so on. Like this, I, I think there was a trend of kind of like reassurance. Like people wanted to go back to what they knew. You know, like in a, in the uncertainty, I want to you know look for something certain and and an old fashioned or an agroni can play that role in that in that sense now so well the martini uh, is going off well like holy shit i i'm gonna tell you now uh there have not been never in history as many martinis poured in new york city as now and wow. there have never been better ones this, this this whole town which is you know quite a small place really if you think about it uh has gone martini crazy and every bar has to have its own martini, which brings me to a question, right? Wow. Okay. So I believe it was my friend Robert Simonson who wrote recently about this. He has a substack. He writes for the New York Times. He writes for Vine Pair, Punch, everything. Writes his own books. Amazing guy. And he basically saw every single bar in New York is now doing its own martini, some mm. kind of a twist on a martini. They add a bit of this, a bit of that. They pickle their onions. Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, this is where we went wrong 20 years ago when everything in a martini glass was called a martini, whether it was blue or green or yellow or chocolate or vanilla. And he said, we've got to, in this new popularity for the martini, we've got to keep the martini front and center because it takes a special kind of self-confidence and humility to say, this is a gorgeous Gin martini. Mm. That's how we make them here. Yeah. That's true. Not worry that you're not going to get the press or the fame or fortune for, you know, Chris's pickled ramp Gibson or something. It's Mm. like, no, we're making a really good classic martini. Yes. And that's the thing that maybe I don't think is so much the case with spirits, uh, so much the case with um, wine or beer, which is, the product gets in the consumer's mouth pretty much as the person makes it, if it all works out well, and it's mm-hmm. nice and it's fresh and it's good. But increasingly, spirits are not going straight into people's mouths. They're being mixed no. in cocktails. Yes. And that's where, as a producer, you don't have the same control. That's very true. That's very true. And I think this, there's a bit of a... Um... There's there's two ways the way I see it, like with when I, when I'm working with spirits brands like there's some brands that are obviously I mean if if you take whiskeys for example like that's the typical one that they you know the the best the best ones are not made for cocktails I mean you can make you can mix them with cocktails but they are made for sipping mm-hmm. and they're made for you know drinking it neat and some other brands and some other categories are more made for cocktails so. Some, you know, if I'm stereotyping, uh, you know, gin is made for mixing mostly. Yes, it is. Uh, a scotch, like an 18 year old scotch, is not, you know, of course, you can 
of course, you can drink a gin neat and you can have an old fashioned with an 18 year old scotch. But, you know, roughly speaking, that's what they have in mind when they market it. No? So I think that that's the first kind of like polarization between two brands. So some of them are more into the like a beer kind of experience. It's like, you know, I'm pouring it into a glass and and that's it, uh, you know, on the scotch side. And then the other one is more like, okay, it's either like a gin and tonic, and then you can play with the with the ritual, with the garnish, with the, you know, with the perfect serve and so on. As one, as much as beer, because also beer, like we have been trained in thinking a beer is a beer and a glass is a glass, but then there are some beers that are treated differently with the foam and with, you know, I mean, Pilsner, Urquell and Guinness are the top of mind example, like since you're, since you're having one now. Well, I'm uh, uh, very close to, have you ever been to the Czech embassy on the Upper East Side of New York? No, I haven't. It's actually used for events. They've even held Diageo World Class there, believe it or not. Okay. And, um, it's it's near to where I live. I live near Embassy Row. It's the safest place in New York because there's like 24 hours security and everything. Um, in the Czech Embassy, they've got a bar. Of course, they've got a bar. Of course. And they serve Pilsner Urkel with three different levels of foam. Yes. Like it's it's perfect. It is a literal perfect serve. Like yes. they do, you know, there are Pilsner Urkel draft bars in like Manchester, Klaus's beer keller, where I've been. It's amazing. They've got the tanks, the whole thing. Yeah. Albert Loss was my That's my the favorite. one, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that's what it is. Um, and that place blew my mind. I think they're opening one in London. But I mean, people do mix beer. It's very common in France. Like something like one third of beer in France has a syrup in it. And they make the pecan beer as well. Yes. So yes. But it's it's unusual. Yeah, it, it depends how let's say how tough are the you know like policy of the state. I mean, if you're here in here in Czech Republic, I mean beer oh, right. is a holy thing, you know, you wouldn't mess with it. You know, like you you have to you have to drink it properly. You know, the 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 top you can do is to mix a, a pilsner and a dark and a dark beer. Like a, of course, like a you know a dark lager, not a not a not a stout. Uh, what do they call it? One. Uh, they call it like a jesany, like a cut, like a half, like a, um, so you basically take, uh, for example, Cozel dark. That's the usual, mm-hmm. um, you know, dark lager. It's like not to be confused with stout. It's it's still a lager. Yeah, yeah, it's a lager. But but it's not you know some people order it and they they expect to get a lager like a like a like a stout but it's actually a lager, and then you can drink it and then if the 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 pourer like the here they call it like the um, you know the I mean translate is like a tapster so to say yeah, yeah. Um, so he if he or she are skilled then they would do it in a proper way that then the two colors don't mix up. Mm-hmm. So the the you know the the dark and the and the golden like they stay apart for for a while, but that's as much as you can play with it. You know, then the rest is very like one one of the things that a lot of tourists or foreigners do wrong is that they, you know, you, you do it like for example in Britain now that you you're having a beer you are almost done you order another one and then you pour the rest of the of the of you know you see a lot of people doing happen. that in pubs it, definitely yeah, happens, it, it happens yeah, a yeah. lot like if you ever do this here like they would kill <laughs> you 
it's just like because you know here the the pouring is part of the of the beer you know yeah, it's yeah. not just like a random person pouring it it's just like it's a proper skill you know the bartender is just do, just does that you know they don't wait uh, tables you know they just stay behind the bar they just wash glasses that they're brought to them and then they just pour the beer that's what they do you know they don't move from behind the bar that's how it should be i mean but there is a tradition of what you've just described like in england when i went there first at the ripe age of uh, 15 and bartended uh it was light and bitter light ale an english bitter and then the famous or more famous uh perhaps is the black and tan which is a stout and an ale right like smithix Wow. Oh, I've, yeah. never, I've never seen those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a thing. I mean, people have always done it. But in the general sense, you know, you can make your cocktail, sorry, you can make your spirits to be mixed. Like, that's what I do. I designed Old Duff Geneva to be mixed in cocktails. And it's always a bit weird when I get interviewed by the press and they're like, how do you like to drink Geneva? I'm like, I drink it straight. But most people don't. Right? In the same way, that's most true. people that's don't true. drink English gin straight. And and then yet again, you see things like mezcal tequila that were always pretty much drunk straight, being yes. really really mixed now. And from the high end, you see cognacs, armagnacs, calvados, even single malts, saying, "Hey, you can mix us because you've now got million case Scotch single malt brands like Glenlivet and Glenfiddich, which is the first yes. one." And at the same time, the price of other whiskies, especially including American bourbon, has gone up so much that Scotch single malt is a good deal. That's true. Like That's you true. can get a bottle of 12-year-old Glenfiddich for less than an eight-year-old American bourbon. And with all due love to eight-year-old American bourbon, which I adore, the Scotch single malt is better. Yes. Yeah, it was just a nice anomaly of the world. <laughs> And that's true. And that's true. And that's uh, and that's very uh, that's very true. And that brings me to another point. I I I, I listened to um, um, to some episode like recently of your podcast, and I I know you're uh, you're also like a big history lover. I am. And uh, and and one one thing that we tend to forget is that a lot of these spirits, you know, they have history, and they even even. You know the the category itself, like it always starts from a normal local consumption occasion. I mean, you mentioned always. tequila and mezcal. I mean, it's Mexican things, Mexican food, Mexican related things, and then you end up in a skyscraper in New York City. But the original consumption occasion is actually Mexico. The same thing if you take Italian amaros or bitters or you know you name it, all the categories that we have they are you know meant for digestive purposes or aperitif purposes before a meal or after a meal so we tend to forget these things that there is always like an original occasion and then there is like a new wave of occasion that is made for cocktails so and 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 that's how things develop so it, it's always like a bit of a kind of like a brand extension of consumption occasion where everybody wants to get into the you know where the money is no and if you take now i mean like 
how the spritz has developed, like every or how the gin and tonic has developed, all brands pretty much they've got a a cocktail with tonic, they've got a cocktail with ginger ale, they've got a cocktail with prosecco and with soda, and you know, like they're all basically fighting in the same space of this consumption occasion, which is the pre-dinner, after work, you name it, uh, uh, as it is. And some brands can be more credible than others because they are, you know, they have a proper story to tell into that. But then some others, like just like totally random, just made of a marketing department invention. Well, I think you've just described marketers doing the classic error, which is like army generals fighting the last war. They're like, well, this worked before. And I was recently asked to revamp a range of, uh, let's say, gins. It wasn't gin, right? But let's say it was gin. Of of course. And they had a range. And it was kind of, there was some marketing um, confusion around them. Like the branding was about this country, but it was actually made in a different country. And there's a few things that were a bit weird. And I said to this, these people who I really know, they're they're friends. I said, okay, so what does success look like to you? Uh, is it awards? Is it sales? Do you want to be in the fancy bars? Do you want to export more? Like, what is your idea of success? And they said, we'd like to be the Tito's vodka of gin. And I said, so, good news, bad news. Good news. I could totally do this. No problem. And it won't cost you much. You could just pay me out of the increased sales. And they were happy. And then they said, what's the bad news? I said, it's going to take 23 years, just like Tito's. Because Tito's (laughs) has been around for 23 years. They didn't just show up five years ago. No. And what you're talking about, um, I think it actually does apply to wine, beer, and spirits equally, which is kind of like the girl next door syndrome. You grow up. There's a little girl your age next door. You never really notice her. You both get to be 16, 17. And one day, one of your friends says, hey, she's really hot. And you've never noticed it because you're too used to it. If you think of all the huge brands in the world, very few of them are huge in their own country. The world's largest Scotch whiskey market is France. And after that, it's America. Yes. Uh, Ireland and Scotland. Ireland invented whiskey. Scotland commercialized it. Whiskey's not the number one spirit in either of them. Cognac, 98% of cognac is exported. It's not drunk in France. French people don't drink it. And if they drink it, they drink fairly low-grade stuff. And, I mean, the classic example, of course, is Jägermeister, which didn't even sell very well in Germany. And an American guy got hold of it and completely reinvented it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the world, I certainly think, is full of amazing spirits. But it's not full of people who know how to sell them and move them and rotate them. So, you know, like, for instance, uh, yesterday or Saturday, I did the podcast with Dale DeGroff. And his Amaro and Aperitivo are, are officially launching on Wednesday here in New York City. Nice. And they're amazing. They genuinely contribute something to the category, right? They're not going to put a scratch on the golden goose of Aperol, but, you know, somebody 
who would buy a tag watch instead of a Rolex, somebody who would buy uh Audi instead of a Mercedes, they might try. Yes. The, somebody who would drink natural wine instead of yellowtail Chardonnay might, mm. you know, somebody who would drink this instead of Budweiser might give it exactly. exactly. Give it a go. But what do you see? Beer is very can be very fast moving, right? And spirits tend not to be quite as nimble, as agile. Is there anything you think that spirits marketers could learn from beer? Ah, that's a that's a good question. I I would say I would say it's this this focus this uh, focus on really understanding much much better um, the the um, let's say the, the the links of the ecosystem. I think that's one of the things that is missing. It's like really understanding, like, you know, you are starting from the brewery or the distillery, and then you go down the value chain to the bar, you know, to the importer, distributor, wholesalers, you know, bar owners, bar staff, bartenders, and so on, and consumer, no? And there is there is something that is, um, um, I, I, let's say, I, I think like spirits are much more... Uh, whenever I see like brand guidelines or, um, you know, like talking to marketing people in the spirits world, like they're very strict in, in their, um, it's like approved cocktails kind of thing, mm -hmm. or like, a, this is how you drink it. This is how you should drink it. This is how you have to teach them to sell, to serve it, you know? And there is, there is a very disconnected moment between the marketing department and actually going into the streets and getting like a slap on your face because you know the what what I always say you know I've always said that when I was a marketer I said like I want to create something and a messaging on which like I wouldn't be ashamed mentioning <laughs> mentioning it you know like I I want to be the sales guy that I'm I'm sent to talk to Philip the bar owner and I'm not ashamed to say what I've been told in the office. You know, and this is the moment of truth. And this is like what I noticed that doesn't really happen in the spirits world because there is too much focus on the top of the top of the top of bartending. And, you know, like, so, so in, in one way, there's a lot of like, uh, let's say thinking too highly of a product and then on the other end it's being too strict about that product and then it ends up in being like okay i'm a bartender and i don't care much what you're telling me to do like I'm, i don't care about your brand guidelines i don't care about your perfect serve if it doesn't make sense for me why should i serve it with this garnish instead of this other garnish and why should i why should I serve it only in old fashioned? And why should I serve it only in Negronis just because you tell me so? Well, with beer, it's much more, there's much more focus on, on the rotation because if that beer expires, I mean, the guy is going to call me and he says like, I've got five kegs in the cellars and they're all expired. What do you want to do? You know, do you want to pick them up and refund me and give me five fresh ones or I stop buying from you? You know, while in, in spirits, it's just like, 
I don't care. I, I just want to focus on Philip that is as strict as me serving it only in the old fashioned. And I don't care if he serves only one old fashioned every two months because the bottle doesn't expire anyway. And that's a distribution point. And Philip has a great bar. That's really interesting. There are a lot of people who want a toehold in amazing bar X, amazing bar Y. And they want to be able to say, oh, we are in this place and that place. But I said earlier that people don't know about spirits. Of course, that also applies to brand managers and brand directors and marketing directors, right? Because they tend to be hired right out of college. Um, Maybe they've got MBAs. Mm -hmm. And what's different about spirits to beer or wine or toothpaste or tomato soup is we all use shampoo and tomato soup and toothpaste and we've got you know quite an idea about beer quite an idea about wine Mm. no idea about spirits and no one's teaching you either so if if you're the new brand manager and you've got to write brand guidelines for your gin or your whiskey or your rum or your tequila you'll say all right well Everyone's drinking martinis, so let's suggest a tequila martini, which is a stupid idea. Yes. But you don't know it's stupid. Because you, no you don't go to bars. Yeah. And by the time you get to be senior, you have 2.2 children, a Volvo, and a house two hours outside the city. That's very true. So you're definitely not going to bars. <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> you know? And that's, that's, a very good, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. And, that's a, and that there, there's a... I see two challenges on on that front because like the first one is that spirits has been FMCGized uh, recently by you know big corporations and so on so that there's been a pool you know like it, it used to be bars mainly and now it has become supermarkets it has become you know the the shift has been from on trade to off trade you know so what that means is that the philip or chris you know the bar guys are not necessarily skilled for supermarket key account management category management kind of conversation so what do i do as a big brand i hire people from procter and gamble you know dairy products you know uh pharmaceuticals all other companies that are you know toothpaste you mentioned like you know washing powder stuff that is actually rotating and really fmcg so that drags a lot of new people into the business into the spirits business and which is not i mean like the wrong people it's just like they're right for their job but they're wrong for the on trade because they may either not go out ever or (laughs) they've never gone out they've never been out they're not bar people you know, they go, they order a cocktail every three months. Or option three, they go out and it's not their fault, but they don't get it. Like Absolutely. I went to um, Cape Canaveral where they launch, you know, space rockets. And I walked around. I have no idea how they build space <laughs> rockets or how this thing. I took a few photos, but, you know, these people, they go into a bar and bars. Um, I don't, Did you ever work in bars, uh, Chris? I did, I did, I, I, I did mainly like in uh, in restaurants more than more than in bars. So like on on the bar front, like mainly you know like really like small small shifts. 
Well, what I'd like to say is more than 20 years, because if I told people how long it really was, I'd seem even older than I am. But let's say more than 20 years. And the problem with bars and restaurants, hospitality generally, is the very best people, who usually are Italian, by the way, um, make it look easy. That's the job. That's true. Right? Nobody ever says, you know what? When I retire, me and the wife, we're going to start a coal mine and just run it for fun. But so many people <laughs> say that we're going to have a little bed and breakfast. We're going to have a little pub. We're going to have a little bar. It looks like so much fun. I'm like, you have no fucking idea. Yes. So that's the fault of hospitality professionals who make it look easy. And it's not the world of the entree, the world of spirits. It's not that complicated. It isn't rocket science. No. But. It does require a bit of extra learning, knowing how bars make their money and where or not, and how they operate. I mean, I've taught a lot of courses where I would train sales reps to go into bars and assess the bar. Mm. Because outside the USA, this might be interesting to any of my American listeners, um, a liquor company can literally just write a check. It's like, okay, we want to be the house vodka in the rail two cocktails on the menu, every menu for the next year. Uh, here's your target. If you hit the target, you get extra bonus, just like in supermarkets. When you walk in and you see Campbell's Soup at eye level, they're paying to be there. Yes. Exactly. Right? Uh, so a sales rep or a sales director could be in charge of quite a large listing fee budget. And you go into a, a new bar, you don't, and, and every, every bar owner sounds impressive, right? They all do. I used to be one. <laughs> You're in the business. You say, oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. How do you know if they're going to do that? Like I used to train them on something as basic as, okay, you look at the back bar and all the bottles have little pour spouts on them. Are they all pointing in different directions or do they all point in the same direction? Do the bartenders have actual cocktail recipes? Because sometimes they don't. Do they have a bar manual? Yes. What's it like when it's busy? Because if a bar is disciplined and organized, they're probably going to fulfill their end of the bargain. Mm. But if not, they might just be taking the money and running. And again, that comes down to a, a, a general lack of, well, spirits knowledge for sure, mm. and definitely knowledge about how, um, about how bars operate. That's true. That's very true. Like if you get your marketing degree, you work for Unilever or Procter & Gamble, in the shampoo division, well, everyone uses shampoo, even me, but, and you buy shampoo from a shop, or maybe you buy it online. That's easy. But bars are a little different. Yes. And that's true. And, 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 and what's really interesting for me is that I've, I've been, the, I've been doing this, I've, I've been working in export for all my career. So I was always selling the small brands in that country you know like it was always like you know maybe it could be a big brand like peroni or pilsen urkel but when nobody knows them you know mm -hmm. it's not in yeah, the home yeah. market so it's it's always a bit of a challenge you know like you may find the uh, people that get it but not not most of the people that's a nice and uh and the interesting thing was that you know like whenever i was taken out for a bar visit like a bar tour or trade visits as we called them or when i was taking people out, you wouldn't imagine how many senior people do not get it. You know, like they don't even know how to behave in a bar. You know, they think that the owners of the bar 
you know, they walk in, they start, you know, taking the the the, the bottle, they start touching stuff around, they start taking pictures. Like you may you may have been to a really cool bar where you know pictures are not really welcome, so to say. They start taking pictures like it, like you were at Cape Canaveral, <laughs> and and it's uh, you know it's incredible because then you see like I mean this guy is a super senior guy or girl. And and that's what it's astonishing because it's like, do I really need to make a point outside of the door? Like, guys, please behave, follow me. <laughs> like be in a line, you know, like don't make a mess, don't ask stupid questions, and so on. But that's how it happens because as a, as we said before, like either they they are not bar people or they don't get it, or they forgot because they used to go out 30 years ago and the bar scene 30 years ago was slightly different than today. And this is the interesting thing about the developing, the development of the on-trade business and why even though in the mar- in, in, in some of the markets and in many markets, it's actually a, a fraction of the off-trade sales. Oh yeah. It still retains the, you know, like the most important aspects of launching and scaling and an alcoholic beverage yeah again for my listeners with the exception of asia everywhere around the world the off-premise liquor stores is usually 80 percent of spirit sales like Mm -hmm. in ireland where i'm from it's 88 now believe it or not that's weird you would think people drank more in pubs in ireland but i think they just buy lots from liquor stores um so therefore on a logical basis, you concentrate on liquor stores, but that's not actually how it works. The on-trade is your shop window. It's yes. how you get press. It's how consumers hear about you. Uh, it's very, very powerful. And in even a medium-sized country, like, say, the UK, even if it's only 10 or 15% of sales, that's quite a lot. And, yes. and you can win there. So I want to ask you a question, Chris. Imagine you're a little liquor brand, specifically a liquor brand, and you're focused on the on-trade and you're focused on cocktails, and you've basically got like no money or almost no money. Everything comes from sales, whatever you have. What are the two or three things you think a little brand like that should be doing? So first of all, and I mean, like, and this applies to a lot, a lot of a lot of brands out there, but you know, like m- most most of the people that I'm speaking to on LinkedIn, for example, like they own a brand and they are bootstrapping. They don't have funding. They're not VC funded. They're not, mm-hmm. you know, they don't have rich money, rich, like deep pockets kind of thing. So what I always advise is the first of all is translate that brand into a commercial proposition. So really be crystal clear in, uh, in understanding, like, what does that mean? If you have to, the further you go from you, and from your own in, inner team, which is probably you and your wife or <laughs> you and your husband and or like your cousin, and you are explaining it to distributors, salespeople, bartenders, like what do you want them to know about your brand? And it's not about how you fell in love with the recipe of your great-grandfather. It's really like, who is this for? You know, what do you do? How do you drink it? What's best for? What's the best occasion to drink it? And understand which type of bars or restaurant you want to sell to. Like, just make it like three, three, four, three, four typologies. And then pick a city, which 
in theory should be your own city because mm-hmm. that's where you where you should win first and then understand you know map those outlets out you know like so imagine like it's it could be like a modern italian restaurant uh whatever like a, a sushi restaurants and cocktail bars focusing on organic ingredients whatever you know i'm just making it up so then map that out like take your 50 kind of bars and then understand map them out and get a system in place to go and hunt them you know present your brand and really focus on those first but as i always like to say it's you know a case in one bar is better than one bottle in six bars you know mm-hmm. so six bottles it's still one case it's still six bottles but you want to ensure the rotation before moving on to the next the next one because you want to ensure that when people you know if i manage to get my brand into philips bar then people know that there is my brand because it's not like on the third row on the back bar but it's actually you know philip is making cocktails out of it or he's recommending it as an aperitif or as a digestive or whatever you know so people actually are using the product and then i move on to the next one through connections and through a system you know and then once that you win in a city then you move to the next city a little bit like let's say the starbucks kind of kind of way no and because what i noticed that a lot of people do is that they tend to get deal with deals with importers the first slide i see everyone you know every deck i get sent to to me it's always like we are sold in 12 countries we are sold in 15 countries and it's like yeah but i don't care how many countries you're sold into because i know that you're selling very few cases Mm -hmm. and you know i don't care that you got a deal with an importer that may have you know done a favor to you or whatever you got through connections but i know that 80 to 90 percent of your sales are actually coming from one country anyway you know in the in the initial stage of the brand and then the, the further you go i mean it, it still gets to pareto i mean you can go to 80 20 60 40 but you know we're always there anyway so why do you enlarge your distribution into different countries that you cannot control while actually it's only you you're one single person go out in the street be in the trade and don't bureaucratize your processes so that basically you have you are forced to stay in the distillery or in your office sending a person out that doesn't have a clue of what they're doing and you lose control of the market yeah so many people get obsessed by expanding to extra states in the USA, exporting. And I had one client in particular, you know, they hired an export manager. He was very good. And he opened all these markets. He sent a container everywhere, but he had no time to follow up. So there was nobody in the market explaining what the product was. And years later, I would visit a lot of these markets. And there was one particular aspect of the brand that was very often misunderstood. Mm. And in every single market, every single person misunderstood it. So I had bartenders explaining what it meant, and it was completely wrong. Because all that had happened was they sold a container. That's it. Yes. Like selling a container is not the end, it's the beginning. Yes. And that's and that's always the and that's a tricky thing because I, I've been 
spent, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in analyzing this, that it doesn't really matter if you're talking bars, if you're talking wholesalers, or you're talking importers or countries, the issue is always the same. I mean, you, I may give you another example that is a sales rep in a city that has 50 bars, but then cannot follow up. So, you know, mm. you, you, you made the example of like 50 states, or I can say 50 countries in Europe, in Europe and Middle East and Asia, but it's always the same thing. And if you cannot, you know, don't get yourself, you know, like into something, you know, you don't spread yourself too thin because that's what's going to happen. And then you're going to under deliver, you know, not service them enough and so on. And a lot of people are, you know, want to enter markets, but then it's like, so do you have any AMP advertising promotion budgets? No. Do you have a person here like they can, you know, walk the street and, you know, and do some legwork? No. No. It's like, so what do you want? Like you want me to sell, you know, a pallet here to do what? Like to, to sit in, in the importer. Then if you like it, it sits in the wholesaler. And then if you like, it sits in some bars around the city. Do you but know the story if... about Kettle One, um, Chris? No, no. It's a lovely story. So um, I lived in Holland for 17 years, and I know the Nolette family that own Kettle One. And I had met all of them, Carola Sr., uh, his son Bob, but I hadn't met Carl. And Carl is the guy who built Kettle One in America. Okay. Right? Because I wasn't living in America at the time. And I was asked to do some stuff. I'm pretty sure it was Diageo World Class, actually, in Vancouver. Somewhere I've been many times. And we were going to, you know, do some seminars, go around some bars, talk to a load of bartenders. And then we we're going to wind up at one bar and all the other bartenders would come there. That was the general idea. And the lady who hired me said, oh, yeah, Carl Nolette's going to come with you. He's skiing in Whistler, which is nearby. It's very fancy. He lives in California and he's going to drive up and he'll come out and hang out with you. Now, Carl is the most charming man in the world. I'm pretty good, but he's on another level. He's really cool. Right. And we we drove around Vancouver all night, hanging out all night. And he told the story that he is in New York. He's trying to sell Kettle One vodka. Now, you got to know, nobody gives a shit about vodka from Holland. No one's ever had vodka from Holland. He's sleeping on the pullout couch of the distributor's son in his apartment, right? And he's going around all day trying to sell Kettle One vodka, which is quite expensive, and no one's ever thought about vodka from Holland. Mm. And there was a big place somewhere downtown in New York, uh, an Italian bar restaurant, and he really wanted to be listed there. It was big, it was busy. And every week he would go in and have a drink and ask if he could give them a tasting of Kettle One, because that's what they did. If you wanted to order Kettle One, he insisted on coming in to give you a tasting, him personally, from the family, so you'd have a story to tell people. It's very clever, but a little difficult. Anyway, every week, no, 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 no. This one week, he goes in, has a drink. Can I do a tasting? No. Walks out. And he's crossing the street, and an older lady falls down in the middle of the crosswalk. So... It's New York, so everyone ignores her. He helps her up, and he says, hey, are you okay? Can I take you anywhere? And she goes, oh, in there. Of course, it was the owner's mother. No the, way. Yeah. And the owner said to Carl, oh, my God, thank you so much. I want to order 10 cases. 
And Carl said no. But if you don't mind, I would love to give a tasting like tomorrow. And if you like it, you can order like three bottles. And tomorrow was Saturday. So he comes in on Saturday, does a tasting. They order three bottles. He gets a call on Sunday. Like, we need 10 cases. We sold all the bottles. He said, no, I'll bring you three more bottles. So it got to the stage where he's bringing like three bottles twice a day. And then he let them order a case and two cases and stuff. But his logic was he could have quickly sold 10 cases. But they would have sat there in the liquor room. And every member of staff would walk past it twice a day, the owner, the bar manager, the bartenders, and see those 10 cases sitting there instead of constantly selling out of this vodka. Yes, that's very true. And it requires a lot of self-confidence to do that, doesn't it? That's a, that's a great story. That's a great story. There's a, there, there, is a, there is a post that I wrote some time ago that, that I was saying, like, don't sell them one case if they if they if they can only sell out a bottle yeah you know which is pretty similar like on, on what you what you told me and, and that's great to have a a, a story to tell now you know? i don't know if it's, it's true but i hope it's true but i can i can imagine it is because because there's uh you know that's the that's the downside of you know like we, we tend to want to oversell and i mean i've been in sales you know managing export for a while no Mm-hmm. And it's easy to say, okay, oh, we want to have a container, mm-hmm. but it's just like, yeah, but what are you gonna do with this container? You know, like it doesn't, okay, it it fixes my month, <laughs> you know, in sales. You know, I make the budget, but if I don't know what's gonna happen afterwards, that you know, you are going to call me next month, or well, not next month, but in a couple of months, like saying basically that this this beer in that case is expiring and we need to do a promotion for it you know like to get rid of it you know so what is the consumer going to see they're going to see like a product like at 50 percent, 40 percent off just because like it's it's due to expire kind of thing no so you never create this fomo that you know help your you know like retaining the share of mind as you said like among the staff and among the 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 consumer as well which is basically like what makes people you know order at the end of the day yeah i mean i think it's very hard for the little guys to get in especially in beer like supposing you make a nice beer right let's say you make a nice pilsner really really good um there's so many of them out there like yes. how do you get rotation in a bar without a big fat budget no and that's and that's a that's a challenge because you have i mean like in in my in my old time and what i always advise is that like first start with packaged you know you want to start with with bottles because it's much easier to sneak in a bottle of beer in a fridge than a keg you know blocking one tap because depending on the market but you know imagine like people have three or four taps on average like apart from you know the bigger ones that have like 10 mm-hmm. or 15 taps but we're talking normal bars like they've got two or three taps so you're asking them a lot to switch because they need to switch and that's the that's also like another big difference between beer and spirits you know if you sell a bottle of of whiskey you're not asking the bartender 
to switch. You know, you're not asking them, give me that bottle and take it away. Yeah. With beer, you are. You are. You're huh? basically saying, okay, I, I'm I'm bringing you Pilsen Urquell. You were selling Heineken. Call the Heineken people and tell them that you're not going to order next month. You know, mm-hmm. that's what you're asking them. You're asking them for an explicit, you know, breakup. Put a bottle, thing. you can put a six pack. But in the bottle, you can sneak it in, and then the moment that it starts to sell, you know, then you can start having a conversation. And then, similarly to your Kettle One story, and I had many of those with Peroni. At some point, I was asked, "When are you going to launch like draft?" Because I know it's not the right time yet. You know, like keep selling bottles, and at some point, we'll sell draft. And I wasn't playing cool. It was just like you know, the business case didn't make sense to me. You know, because kegs also has like the rotation and, you know, returns and it's quite of a, you know, a, a big logistic hassle uh, to, to, to fix. But that's the easier way. And then once you get in, you know, if you have done your homework right, going back to the commercial proposition, then you know that you're selling to certain bars where it makes sense. So I'm I'm having an example here. Like, for example, like I'm, there's, there's some beer companies that are asking me for advice here in Prague. And, and of course, I mean, this is like Pilsner land, no? And I'm like, you cannot go to a Pilsner called pub, pub to sell your keg. It doesn't make any sense, no matter how much money you have or many, you know, if you're the cousin of the owner, it doesn't make sense. So you have to go to places for which selling that particular brand is not strategic. You know, like, so if you go to a Pilsner Urquell original restaurant kind of place, <laughs> you know, like you cannot sell them because they live out of that beer. You know, it's mm-hmm. part of the proposition. But if you go to a burger place, if you go to a sushi restaurant, if you go to a, another type of venue, they don't really care what beer they've got. I mean, they may sell a Czech beer, but they don't really care because the, the occasion is not about Czech beer. You know, they don't go there for beer sessions. They go there for sushi. They may have a glass of wine, a Prosecco, a Spritz or whatever, or a beer that could be in bottle or on tap. So it makes a totally different story. And that's why it's so important and crucially important to understand where you're going to sell. Because if you haven't done that homework, you're basically like setting yourself up for disaster because you're going to sell to the people that don't want to buy and don't want to buy your brand specifically. So that's the that's the crucial thing. But also with a bottle or a can, um, you maintain control over the branding right into the hand of the consumer. It's really hard to brand draft beer, yes. right? I mean, yes. you can have a tap handle, you can get a branded glass maybe. There are some iconic looks of beer like... Um, uh, like Guinness, but with a bottle, you literally put it into the consumer's hand. Exactly. exactly. And that's and that's the challenge going back also like to spirits where, you know, a gin and tonic <laughs> is a gin and tonic. You know, unless you can play with a, with a garnish or with a, you know, with something that can differentiate yourself, but that also used to work much better in the past like before the proliferation of all this gene and all this gene fatigue where now bartenders are getting, are getting <laughs> very eclectically uh, creative, you know, with all sorts of 
plants and fruits <laughs> to put in the in a in a gin and tonic that makes it very difficult to understand like what actually people are drinking. Well, I mean, remember I was still bartending in Europe when Hendrix began making waves, primarily actually in the US and then the UK. Yes. But people would come in and I ran the first um cocktail bar in Holland to get in the world's 50 best bars. Okay. Well. And they would come in and they'd say, oh, Cucumber gin and tonic. And they meant Hendrix. Yes. They didn't even know the name of it, but they knew that. And that's a win for the Hendrix brand team. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, and that's, I used to do that as well. If you're clever, there are ways around it. Like um, Bullet Bourbon, having mm -hmm. been you know founded by the entrepreneur Tom Bullet, and then acquired by Seagram's, and then acquired by Diageo in the implosion of Seagram's, uh, a guy called Steve Beal created a strategy for California based on the on-trade, which is quite, you know, revolutionary. And they did a lot of outreach to bartenders. And one bartender created a cocktail, uh, John Santer, and it was called a revolver. Okay. Right? It's a great cocktail. But obviously, you have to use bullet bourbon in a revolver cocktail. Of you have course. to put a bullet in the revolver. So... I think that there are still ways to do this, to to really associate yourself and stand out. And it's obviously been a part of beer marketing for a long time. Like the lime in the neck of a bottle of Corona is the reason Corona is Corona, I feel. Yes, yes, yes. And you have to be able to, to own it. So when you create it, you have to, as you said, like on the bullet and the, revol the revolver, like... You have to be able to own it and to ring fence it because otherwise, if you're just like creating something that anybody can come in and steal from you, then all of a sudden it doesn't make sense. You know, like it, I mean, you can be making money because you were the first one to do it, but if you're not fast enough to capitalize on it, you know, the newcomer comes in and basically steals it from you anyway. Yeah. I mean, after Hendrix launched, Martin Miller's gin launched as well. And they also famously had the secret ingredient of cucumber. But for whatever reason, <laughs> it just didn't take off in the same way. Yes, yes. And I think that's something else that we have to recognize, despite our experience and qualifications. Um, for me, particularly in the spirits industry, I don't think anybody knows anything. Nobody creates consistent successes what they do is they try to get their finger on as many projects as they can and if one of them becomes mm. successful they're like i was part of that and they don't talk about the rest of them like the last yeah. brand the last truly successful brand that diageo created from scratch was bailey's and that was 1971 yes yes i listened to the episode with uh with david glukman yeah that's uh but it's true for every company let's 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 not shit true. on Diageo. No, and it's true, and it's true, and it's it, it's it's the same thing, and also like that that has got to do with in general with companies about the rotation of stuff, because I mean I, I I've seen it myself in my you know in the companies I've been working uh, for, uh, all of a sudden like I may have been one year in a role and I was the oldest guy, <laughs> because honestly like that's how it works because like a guy gets promoted a guy gets fired. A girl gets moved on and whatever, like all of a sudden, like you had four marketing manager in a team 
and you're the only one. And then the new boss comes in and is like, can you tell me the story about this unit? And I'm like, I've been here like a year and a half or even worse. I've been here for months. So what mm. do you want me to, you know, what, like, let's find out together kind of thing. And all those documents are lost in the ether, you know, because, you know, basically like the, the, uh, I'm sure I know some stories of launches and failures and successes that, you know, they can only stay in PowerPoint in a, in a OneDrive. And, but the reality is different than PowerPoint, you know? So I know exactly what happened, but you know, who takes over from me, you know, may heard it because I did it in the transition, but five changes onwards, you know, the there's no institutional of, memory. No, no. And you cannot, you, you know, the, the thing is that you can do all the measures, you know, you can put in place all the measures that you want for succession planning and safeguarding documents and so on. But in reality, you know, the word of mouth of the real story, it's just like a legend that goes around bars more than mm. around headquarters kind of thing. Well, an interesting thing, uh, which brings it back to compliance, both in the US and everywhere else, is if you're a little brand, you can get away with so much bullshit. You know, you can lie, you can say it's handmade internally. You can be very loose with your staff, let people smoke marijuana in the office, everything. Yes. But as soon as you get acquired by a big company, they send in two auditing teams. They send in a production auditing team to make sure everything's fine. Like, for instance, when AB InBev uh, bought Goose Island beer, mm. half the staff quit because they didn't want to have to take drug tests. Oh, shit. And they used to walk from the office in their cargo shorts and flip-flops down onto the brewery floor, right to the end of the brewery, because they wanted to fill their water bottles with the really cold water there. Now, obviously, you can't be walking around breweries in flip-flops and cargo shorts. No, not right? really. But the other team audits the marketing. So if you say you're handmade, you better be fucking handmade, right? And exactly. they make sure that everything is above board, legal and compliant. And that leads to the greatest sort of dilemma of spirits and beer and wine marketing, which is big companies don't innovate anymore. They just buy innovative little companies because the big companies can get cheap money from the public markets because they're on the stock exchange. They buy these little successful upstarts but the upstarts are successful because they're rebels and they're rebels because they're not staying to the rules. Then the big company buys them and makes them stick to the rules. And suddenly the brand has nothing anymore. It's very, it's very hard to think of examples where that hasn't been like 42 below vodka was extremely rebellious and successful. Mm. And it was at 170,000 cases when it was acquired by Bacardi. And now, whenever you see it, you take a photo because it's a dinosaur. It's extinct. Mm. I mean, I think it might do 20 or 30,000 cases. Maybe. I don't know. I, and that's very true. That's very what, true. How idiotic is that, though? These companies stuffed full of MBAs from the best schools in the world can't take a successful brand and make it more successful. Yes. I mean, is there an example of a, a good acquisition? 
in any of those fields? I mean, there are, but... I mean, there are, but it, it depends at which stage. I mean, you you made the example of the 23 years, no? Like it's, uh, you know, like mm. it's, uh, you know, when when we met during during Clubhouse, the, uh, I heard this quote from Paul Letko from Few mm. Spirits, and I and I love that, like, it takes 20 years to make an overnight success, no? And I oh, made yeah. it, I made it mine. And, and so it always depends on, you know, it, it brands are living organisms, you know? So it depends. You can, you can be a success because you're two years into the acquisition and then at year seven, it's gone or at, you know, or it takes seven years of bad things. And then eight, the eighth year is the year of rebirth, you know, like, so it, it always depends that you, you cannot really say yes or no in terms of successes. What is interesting, like it's exactly what you said, like that. What I've noticed is that brands rely too much on the existence, on the previous existence of that brand. But when a big company buys a brand, um, they are relying on, you know, let's say they know that brand because they are from the industry. They're looking to the but, future, Jimmy. And they're looking, they're looking to the future, but they, but they, let's say they say, okay, this brand has been doing well for whatever 10 years or let, let's say it's the 10th year and it's starting to do really really well everybody's drinking it everybody's talking about it but everybody means everybody in the industry it doesn't mean everybody because they're still too small to be yeah you know mainstream so what they miss out is that you know like they, if they start to make it mainstream out of like a very shallow kind of like floor, then it, it doesn't really hockey stick. Mm. And and that's the and that's the, the situation, you know, like they 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 made it a good brand, like the previous owner, let's say, made it a good brand because they were the people going to bars and restaurants and being, you know, spending nights at the bar. But now if that that team is gone and the new company doesn't have a team that does that and it's you only want to capitalize on supermarket deal you know you're basically burning it and then it, it could be like two three years 10 years 15 years it doesn't really matter but you are basically like eroding that brand that was created by founders so when the the less bad examples are where the management stays in mm. you know and keep and retain some sort of control but as you rightfully said, you know, it's always very tough to to continue going through that trajectory because, because it, it starts to be like bad press and it's like, oh, now they've been acquired by these big guys and now they're just like pouring money in and then, you know, the bad press and, you know, like the, the bad word of mouth start to spread. So it, it's always a bit of a tricky one, I would say. And beer, beer is fucking brutal. God help you if you have a little bear company and you get bought by one of the big ones, they will literally turn their back on you. Yes. It's yes. so in the spirits industry, it's quite nice. So when somebody gets acquired, everyone's happy. It's like, oh my God, you know, great. Yeah. You know? No, in beer not. Beer is very vicious. I learned that when my wife was working for uh for AB InBev. But in the spirits industry too, not it's not maybe quite as vicious, but there are certain things like, for instance, agave, tequila, mezcal. Yes. Um, yes. Very hard to scale those businesses. 
Because mm. A, agaves take a long time to grow. Mm. And B, Mexico has a lot of issues. So yeah. you can be the nicest person there. You can pay the farmer three times what he gets for the agaves normally. You can build him a house. You can build a school. But unfortunately, it's still not a country that has the same levels of safety and protection as some other countries. That's true. You know? That's so true. you're always going to be the big bad company profiting off this. Even if you pay the farmer three times what he can sell the agaves for anywhere else, at the end of the day, you're selling the tequila for $60, $70, $80 a bottle. Yeah. And it's funny because I was actually going to say in beer, like when beer brands get acquired, is is as bad as celebrity brands in the US. You know, it's the the same level of like press. You know, resistance in uh, in terms of you know not not from the press, but actually from people reading uh, the, the the press is like and and, and uh, I saw it in uh, in Italy. I mean, all these brands that got acquired by big companies. I mean, they they didn't succeed. I mean, I was reading some reports last uh, last last summer, and they all doing pretty bad. And there was like this big wave, like okay, I'll make a I'll make a craft brewery myself and and sell it to the big guys. Doesn't really work like that, uh, you know. Like it, it's not as easy as it found. Because I was reading like a there was a, an Instagram reel from a speech of Steve Jobs some time ago, and they were saying like they were talking about the fact that it's so tough. You know, like that only the crazy ones are really the ones who are pushing the boundaries when things get hard. And that's why successful people are always, you know, like successful because like they are the one who are actually fighting where everybody has dropped out. So you only hear the good stories, but you don't hear the bad stories. Yeah. So my, every acquisition, there is a thousand failures, but then you don't hear the thousand failures. You hear only the, the guy who made it. Yeah, so I mean, that, Steve that's Jobs. why that, that doesn't make the press, you know, like it doesn't make the head the headlines. So then it's like, oh, let's uh, let's launch and and sell to Diageo, and it's like it doesn't really work like that, man. <laughs> no, no, I mean, Steve Jobs. Let's be clear, was an enormous asshole his entire life. Also yes. a genius, yes, but a truly horrendous person in every way. A horrendous, horrendous man. At uh, one time. My stepdaughter, uh, they were actually reading the Steve Jobs biography in school. She was maybe eight or nine. So they're yeah. reading the kids' version. And I fly a lot. And if you remember, there was a time every airport bookshop yes. around the world had that book. Yes. I, and eventually, I also it. Yeah, eventually I had to buy it. <laughs> and I read it. And it was very good. And I remember talking with my stepdaughter once about it. I'm like, hey, darling, you you read about Steve Jobs. And she's like, yep. And I said, so what do you what do you think about him? And she's like, I think people were very mean to him. And I'm like, that's not the lesson you should learn. And she said, what should I learn? I'm like, the lesson you should learn is if you're an asshole, you can get fired from the company you own. <laughs> and that's really what happened. He was such an asshole, he got fired from the company, even though he owned the company. Yes. But the message that you're saying is also true. You can't just be an asshole and wear all black, right, and do these presentations on screen. 
you can do all that and still fail. Yes. But if you fail, nobody asks you to write a book. We only ask the winners to write books. And that's a problem. We need to study the losers as well. Yes. Because so much of success is literally just luck and timing. And no one wants to admit to that. Absolutely. And that's, and that, that goes back to what I was saying about PowerPoint presentation within the companies, you know, like, it's always like, I, 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 one term I really hate in the business world of spirits is like best practices. So can, can, (laughs) can you share some best practice with me as like, I would share practices with you. You know, I don't share best practices because it's, it's only, you know, they're only best because it's written best. Did you, you share bad ones too? No, you never, you never see them, but I know them. <laughs> That's the thing, you know, and I know like how, how to write a good one from a bad one. That's why, I mean, that's part of what I am doing on, on LinkedIn that I'm, I'm trying to, to talk about the, the naked uh, emperor, no, like the, the king is naked. Kind but we of, should talk about the bad Because we should too. talk about that. And, and that should, that will drive, I wrote a post about this, like actually I will, I will post it again. Uh, it's, it's about like, you know, like, let's be honest. Let's, you know, let's endorse honesty. And then let me say, okay, actually, Philip, like, you know, that, that launch that I did, I messed up here, here, and here. So watch out now that you're doing it. And if you incentivize that behavior, you know, it, it could be like, okay, like if Philip's launch is successful, Chris is getting a promotion. Because he's he made the company save so much money that Philip was about to waste just reading a BS PowerPoint presentation from previous experiences that actually he deserves a promotion. But otherwise, I would basically like just hide all the you know all the waste of money just to make myself, you know, like keep myself my job. Yeah, but you if know? you fuck up. It's one thing to fuck up. It's another thing not to learn from it. Exactly. Right? But everyone fucks up. Uh, in fact, on the last podcast, me and Dale were talking about some of our greatest failures in hospitality. Mm. He had a bartender once, his best bartender out of 36 bartenders in the Rainbow Room, who were all making six figures. Right? His number one guy. And this number one guy cut someone off an important guy because he was too drunk and they called Dale. Dale came down and the guy kind of got it together enough that he kind of looked sober to Dale. And Dale went over to the bartender. He said, Hey, look, he seems okay. Give him one more drink. And the bartender looked at him and says, all right, gave him one more drink. Quit the next day. Greatest failure. Me. I had a situation once in my bar I allowed people in and I didn't have a place to put them and they sat in a shitty place and they were isolated and they'd looked forward to it. They'd heard about this bar. This happened 14 years ago, right? That I was the host in my own bar one night and I didn't give people the service they deserved. And I still think about it on a regular basis. It still comes back to me because how else do you learn? Yeah, that's true. And that's something like that, that, that tells a lot about you and about the, you know, how you care about this, this, this industry and about your, uh, your reputation, huh? like that it, you always want to do your, you know, your best, even, even like thinking again about like, oh, that time 
I should have done it differently. Yeah. Uh, if you get hospitality people together, they can always remember when they drop the ball. Oh, yeah, for it's... sure. And, and and it happens. And and it, it doesn't matter like it uh, how much it happens as long as you learn from it and you you know like you you get a course correct because that's also the the, the thing. Like in like we we I think we tend to if I take it from a business perspective, like we we tend to overthink about things. Like imagine like budgets, no? Mm-hmm. You know, when you do targets and budgets, it's like budgets are living organism i mean it's it's like if i take the budget for may it's probably already in jeopardy and it's the eight you know so if i you know like it's useless to say like oh no, no, no we have to fix it we have to fix it it's just like okay it doesn't make sense you know like let's course correct and and let's reassess because all things are living organisms and of course like you need to be a um, you know, like uh, accountable is not about like, okay, whatever, like, you know, we just did it for fun, you know, budgeting and targeting. But as, as you know, as soon as we know this, let's reassess things. And we are living in a culture in which is like, it's all about hustling and scaling and growth and growth hacks and uh, shortcuts and all these kind of things. While, you know, it's all about actually doing the right things and, you know, improving one percent of the time every single day it's something that gets lost i feel hey let me ask you a question when people want to get to know the spirits industry the beer industry the wine industry the on trade uh do you give your clients a reading list because i have a list for my clients um Occasionally, yes. I I actually have a lot of the books that you recommended to me on uh, on Twitter a couple of months ago. Um, so I've got like a few out there. Um, and uh, but I I do. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an avid reader, so I I love reading. So I'm, I mix industry books and kind of like history uh, history books. I, I love to connect the two worlds kind of thing mm-hmm. but um yeah I, I I don't I don't have a list that I give to people but my my actual favorite nowadays that I'm recommending very often is uh brand mysticism by Stephen grass very good that, book that's the one I really I devoured it over Christmas Eve and Christmas Day you know just oh, like wow. sitting on the it was just like two days let's just like and it was like talking about brands I work with, you know, like I, I knew of, uh, I've been following his journey for a while. So it was, it was interesting for me and uh, it, it was very easy to, to read. It, it's very easy. Yeah. Brand Mysticism by Stephen Grass and Aaron Goldfarb is excellent. And I actually had just bought it and I was at the Christmas party of the New York Times drinks writer, Robert Simonson, and Aaron was there. So I got to hang out with him. And ask him, what was it like? And he's like, well, you know, I'd go down to Philadelphia or call up Steve. And Steve would just like talk <laughs> and do uh, and do all this. But it's to me, uh, everyone should read it. But a large part of it is, if you haven't read it yet, is the creation of a brand universe yes. or a brand, right? Like kind of like J.R.R. Tolkien created entire languages for the different elves and orcs and whatnot in Middle Earth for Lord of the Rings, uh, because he spoke 14 languages. And as Steve Grass says in the book, 
if you create a brand universe, you know, a 200-page, everything, who the brand is, who it's for, where it's for, where the people who drink it live, the clothes they wear, their hairstyles, the cars they drive, where they take a vacation, no one can ever take that away from you. No one can ever argue with you. No mm -hmm. brand manager, no brand director, no importer. It's like, I created this world. It would be like arguing with Steven Spielberg about what Jurassic Park looks like. Yes. It's, it's very... Very important. Although J.R.R. Tolkien did take a few shortcuts once upon a time. Um, I don't know if you know, he really was a professor no, of modern I mean. languages. And uh, for the, I believe, the Orc language, at this stage he had created several complete languages for Lord of the Rings. And he was just fucking tired. So uh, <laughs> he the orc language is essentially Finnish. He spoke no Finnish. No one else did. One year, I was on Christmas vacation in the North Pole in Rovinjimi in northern Rovinjimi. Finland. Yes, it's really amazing, stunning. Minus forty-two degrees every single day, and on Christmas Day, all around the world was the premiere of Lord of the Rings. Everywhere. It was released everywhere all at once. Okay. And the place where we were staying, we all had our little lodge with a sauna and floor heating, but there was a central lodge with a restaurant and a bar and a little 40-person cinema. So we saw the world premiere of Lord of the Rings in northern wow. uh, Finland in the, uh, in, in the Arctic Circle. And it was very funny because the Middle-earth languages were subtitled. Most other people there were Finnish. When the orcs were attacking and they were shouting in orc, all the Finnish people started laughing before we did because they they could listen and translate it. It's Finnish. J.R.R. Tolkien said, fuck know. it, I've invented enough languages. But go, going back to Steve's book, I, I think it's really great. Have you ever read Beer Blast by Philip von Munching? No, no, I haven't. It's a remarkable book. And I recommend it to everybody in the spirits business. It came up on the podcast with Dale as well. So Philip's grandfather, or great-grandfather, was actually a steward, a bartender, on the liners that used to cross from Rotterdam to New York. And there was okay. an executive of the Heineken Company on one of those liners going to New York to find an importer for Heineken beer. And on the trip, which took two or three weeks then, he got to know this bartender, who was very nice, knew a lot about beer, charming, spoke English. And by the end of the journey, he said, look, why don't you get off the boat here? I'll give you some money and you be my importer. And that's exactly what happened. The porters, the bartender's name was Van Munching. And the Van Munching family were the exclusive importers of Heineken into America until six years ago. Wow. And what's important about that isn't the beer. They didn't just invent imported beer in America. They did. They invented premium beer. Yes. And this book written by the grandson or great-grandson uh, is remarkable because it's the book's more than 10, 12 years old, but it details the development of the beer industry, mm. the rise of craft... If you want to know what's happening in spirits for the next 20 years, read Beer Blast by Philip von Munching. It's spectacular.
Like it's it's it, I reread it every now and then. I've got my copy over there, and it's it, it sends shivers down my shot down my spine. It's so forward looking. I will I will I will uh, I will definitely read it. It's uh, it's uh, it's very it's very fascinating for me. Like because I I I'm a really big believer that you know you can really study trends from the past and 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 foresee the future. I mean, I would, of course it's not a crystal ball, but. But you can see patterns and you can see things. It's a little bit like with like categories, no? Like rum goes down, gin goes up, scotch goes down, Irish whiskey goes up. You know, it's there are phases, you know, like it, it's just like, I don't know if it's like 10 years or 20 years kind of, uh, you know, like recurring phases. But the categories are what they are, you know, at, at the end of the day, no? Like now nobody talks about vodka and now vodka will come back in, I don't know. 10, 12 years. Well, uh, every time there's a decline, there's an opportunity. But I mean, maybe we're looking at it wrong, Chris. I mean, maybe that's the cycle it takes to throw up marketing geniuses. Like um, Sidney Frank, who created Great Goose and really created everything you know mm-hmm. about Jägermeister. Amazing dude. Um, Michel Roux, who created everything you know about Absolute. And then Grand Marnier, he took Grand Marnier from 40,000 cases at $19.99 a bottle to 400,000 cases at $39.99 a bottle. Uh, He then, after Absolute was taken away from him, completely revamped Stolly and built Stolly Mm. to be the global brand that it is now. And then, because that wasn't enough, he created Bombay Sapphire and revitalized uh, gin. Without Bombay Sapphire... You wouldn't have a bottle of Hendrix behind you. No, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and and also, and and I think it's very similar to what happens in football. No, like when these kind of like football teams are dying, you know, and then all of a sudden, fifteen years in, it's just like Champions League cha- champions, you know, mm. because they invest. If you if you look at the teams, like they invest in the youth team, you know, uh. so it takes a generation to to restart from scratch and basically say, okay, national team that it's gone forever. And and it, it, if you look at it, I mean, like it, we got it for whatever, Ajax and Barcelona and Bayern Munich and mm-hmm. Manchester United, you know, like all, all kind of like football teams go through that phase that at some point it's just like they don't win a title for 15 years. And then all of a sudden, like they win for five years in a row. Because they've got a team that is so cohesively speaking the same language, going back to the the brand uh, mysticism kind of thing. That's um, that that's the 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 what makes brands thrive at the end of the day. I mean, at the moment, I think the Sydney Frank of our generation uh, is probably Ken Austin. You know who that is? Uh, no, I don't. He's the guy. He he is again. I'm remarkably charming, but I can recognize when someone's on another level. This guy's on another level. I met him at an event. So he is the guy who essentially created Av- Avion tequila. Okay. Terramana tequila for okay. Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. Okay. Proper Twelve for Conor McGregor. He has like three other projects running right now, and what he does is he can raise money. He knows the distilleries. He'll rake in a celebrity somehow, and they'll just go mega fast in year one. 
They want to hit 300,000 to 500,000 cases in the first 12 months. And maybe they'll do it by consumer sales. Maybe that's just how much distributors buy and don't mind sticking in their warehouse. We'll see. But he has an immaculate track record. He's just launched Bottle Cocktails with Jennifer Lopez. Like He really has, I feel, the, the zeitgeist. Okay. Well, I, I, mean, did, well, I, didn't, I didn't know of him. Who else is that good at the moment? I mean, who's had more than one success? We have a lot of one-hit wonders, and that's okay. That's true. It's it's quite tough to. I'm I'm always very like whenever somebody asks me like I'm always skeptic to drop names because because it's always like I I if I don't know fully you know like the the let's say then eighty nine percent story I don't you know I'm I'm always reluctant to say that but you you seem to have a lot of like knowledge and connections in the in the in these worlds and uh, I, I didn't know I didn't know many of those names so thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's about finding, like, I'm, you know, my degree is marketing. I love marketing, and I have respect for it. You know, Dwayne Johnson seems like a nice guy, but I don't think he's a business genius, certainly not in the liquor business. No, no. Right? But if you can put together a team that includes him, amazing. Yeah. And a lot yeah. of these projects start like that. It's not, it's not like it, it's celebrity-owned, but it's more like celebrity, kind of like <laughs> borrowed. Uh, well, I'm in talking. a way, you know, like it, it's always a, you know, like maybe they they may step in at the very end of the journey, you know, when they need the the final name, oh, that's okay. rather than the rather than the you know initiators of the of the project. I have to meet a celebrity here in uh, in New York soon. Uh, what it is? She's a mega celebrity in England. Okay, she lives in New York. Nobody really has any idea. She can't walk down the street in London. She's she's a really big deal. Okay. And a friend of mine is kind of helping her with her project. And I have no business. I'm not trying to sell my services or anything like that. But my friend contacted me. And my job is essentially to be the bad guy here, to sit them down and say, so here's how the drinks industry works. Like, oh, Oh, your friend owns a fancy restaurant? That's that's nice. That's that's really great. You know, that's 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 one account. That's great. Do you know how it works with distributors? Do you know how it works with importers? Like this is a totally different thing. And I kind of like it. I like being the person who's not selling a product or a service. Uh just to spread a bit more awareness about our exactly. industry. You know, because you can, it's very different in other countries. You can start a vodka in England. You can sell it out of the back of your car at festivals and stuff like that. You can sell it on Amazon, which you can't do here in the US. It's a fundamentally different game. It's a bigger market. So what spirits category is interesting to you right now, uh, Chris? Ah, that's. Uh, I mean, I'm. I'm. Let's say I'm always looking at the Italian spirits with a with a bit of a, you know, like love and you know history and you know there were always these these uh, bottles like these strange bottles uh, 
the getting dust in the in the cabinet of my father when I when I when I grew up. Like they, my family has not been like big drinkers, like apart from you know wine at, over over lunch and dinner. So there was there were always like this kind of like we had a fancy you know mirror uh, you know uh, like cabinets that uh, you know with fancy glasses that were never used and 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 I still have like back home in Rome at, at in Rome uh this bo- these bottles and i'm like well wow, this this bottle i've never even you know i've always been scared of tasting it because i didn't even know like if you could drink it after so many <laughs> years like some of them are like 70 years old so so for me like all these amaros and vermouth and uh you know like um, all these categories that are very crucial to the italian you know dining kind of like and spirits industry are always the one that are very fascinating for me um so i'm uh, i'm very much like into learning how to how to do that uh and uh, you know how to how they work and uh because you, you you get so many out of a regional you know like depending which herbs grow where mm-hmm. and and so on so it's a very fascinating industry and especially like now that you know like we got to learn about botanicals with you know with the gene uh uh proliferation so now I'll, i whenever i go back to italy i always ask friends in the industry like to recommend me some uh some of these strange very old school uh elixir uh and uh, and uh, and drinks i mean there's so much coming out i mean now we're talking not just italian brandy amaro aperitivo and vermouth but also whiskey mm. so much gin Absolutely. Now, yeah, like gin is is always like. I mean, now it's it's a little bit like too much to my to my taste. Mm-hmm. But but for example, I mean, I'm very interested into the world whiskeys now. You know, really understand like how different companies are, different countries are starting to to develop their own whiskeys and their own take on whiskey and um, and so on. So it's a uh, it's a very it's a very in- interesting uh, category to. To look into, especially because it's, you know, you develop it with an idea, but then you have to wait so many years to, to see it through. And I think that that's the, that's what fascinates me a lot because, you know, like it's, it's very different from when you have the idea talking about cycles, you know, you may be on the wrong cycle (laughs) and Mm. you may need to wait a little bit because what you have developed may not be uh that popular in 10 years time so you may want to wait or if you can afford it or then you are creating something that you know like can can live and 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 survive the test of time in five to ten years time so it's uh it's always very interesting how how these things develop oh it's like i said nobody knows anything you only talk about your successes (laughs) exactly (laughs) So I think we should wrap this up. Chris, where can people find you and Maffeo Drinks? And can you talk a little bit just about the services that you offer people, your uh, newsletter, your video calls, all that kind of thing? Absolutely. Thank you for uh, for letting me do that. So I'm. Um, uh, you can find me at maffeodrinks.com. So Maffeo is spelled uh, uh, Mike Alpha Fox Fox Echo Oscar Drinks.com. Uh, I have a website called WinningWithDrinks.com where you can get newsletters and free articles that are shipping every once you know once uh, once a week or 
uh, bi-weekly. And I recently launched my own podcast where I will obviously invite you, Philip, um, uh, very soon, uh, the Maffeo Drinks podcast. And uh, and you find me on LinkedIn, Chris Maffeo, uh, where I, you know, basically like advise and give, you know, like a, like I speak the truth about the drinks industry, especially when it comes to on trade and how brands should focus on launching and and growing sustainably without any hacks or shortcuts yeah chris is the best one minute read on all of linkedin if you are in the drinks business or if you are a human who drinks you should definitely follow chris on linkedin that's how uh we actually met and it's remarkable well chris this has been fantastic thank you uh so much we're going to put this up soon. I hope that I can uh, hang out with you and your podcast. It'd be a lot of fun as well. And let's say this year, we're going to do it for real as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you All very right. much, Philip. Count you out. Five, four, three, two.